everybody and welcome. It is 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. And thank you for joining us for the 135th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. We were sorry that we could not join you on the 17th as we intended. Dr. Mathis was ill for a time, and thank you for your understanding. All right, we'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple, before we begin pardon me, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now, we may have some technical difficulties, so we beg your forgiveness if we do, but the show must go on. And so we will bring you a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc.
All righty. As always, thank you for that and for soldiering through. And if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. So that was an excerpt from an old sweet song called Love is Like Oxygen. Okay, and uh, the reason that I yeah, and the reason I wanted to use that is because the lyrics are so great, talking about you know love is like oxygen, you get too much, you're going to get high, not enough, and you're going to die. So it has to do with balance and chemistry in the brain, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So I thought that'd be kind of a cute little segue into it. That is an excellent choice. I can totally see that. So, as Dr. Mathis mentions, tonight's episode is entitled Mother's Little Helper, Depression and Antidepressants. And there is a slight nod to the Beatles there, which we will discuss in a moment. Before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. Most people uh, within the sound of my voice probably know, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're a musician, who uh, Jeff Lynne is. But for those who don't know, he's kind of the driving force between, uh, behind uh, Electric Light Orchestra. So people know him sort of as the vocalist and songwriter and uh, guitarist for that band. But what a lot of folks may or may not know is he's also a really well-known uh, producer in addition to his writing skills and his playing abilities and his vocal stuff. So I thought tonight I would talk about some other artists, <clears throat> most of whom are very, very well-known folks, who he has either written songs for written or, and or produced or co-produced songs for, uh, going back as far as 1975. So uh, he is not a newbie to the field. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, so I'm going to start off with a name, uh, Jasper Carrot, who I've never heard of before. Uh, I had a song called Funky Moped, and uh, Jeff Lynne was the producer on that. He was the writer of the Helen Reddy song, Poor Little Fool, which he released in 78. Uh, he wrote and produced Dave Edmonds' Slipping Away, which was a big hit for him, uh, in 83, and then produced... Uh, information and Something About You in 83 and 84 for Dave Edmonds. Uh, for the Everly Brothers in 84, he wrote and arranged a song called The Story of Me, which never heard of because that's not one of my strong bands. Uh, <clears throat> likewise, Agnetha Faxgold, however heck she pronounces her name, never heard of her either. I have heard of the Everly Brothers, obviously. Uh, he wrote a song for her in 85 called One Way Love. And then most folks know uh, the 87 George Harrison recording that has uh, the album that has things like Got My Mind Set on You, uh, This Is Love, and When We Was Fab, which is probably my favorite George Harrison solo song. So uh, Dave, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Jeff Lynn uh, co-produced Got My Mind Set on You, co-wrote and co-produced When We Were Fab, and co-wrote and co-produced This Is Love. In 87, on Dwayne uh, Eddy's record, uh, he wrote and produced a song called Theme for Something Really Important. Brian Wilson, uh, 88, of the Beach Boys, obviously, uh, Let It Shine, he co-produced and co-wrote that song. Uh, in 88, Randy Newman's song Falling in Love, he produced. Uh, Roy Orbison, in 88, 
his song You Got It, which is a very big hit for him, was co-written and produced by Jeff Lynne. A Love So Beautiful was also co-written and produced, and so was Walk and so was uh, California Blue. In 89, Del Shannon's song Walk Away was co-written and co-produced by Jeff Lynne. And then in 18, uh, 1989, Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down, co-written and co-produced, Running Down a Dream, co-written and co-produced, Free Falling, co-written and co-produced, A Pretty Face in the Crowd, same story, and You're So Bad, same story. And several of those were monster hits for uh, Tom Petty. And they were all co-produced and co-written by Jeff Lynne. Uh, in 1989, Cheer Down, George Harrison's song that was used uh, on Lethal Weapon soundtrack, co-produced by Jeff Lynne. Uh, Miss B. Haven, which I thought was a cute name for an artist. No, no idea who that is. Uh, in 1990, had a song called Nobody's Angels, which Jeff Lynne produced. And then in 1991, uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Learning to Fly, co-written and, co- and produced by Jeff Lynne. And Into the Great Wide Open, produced and co-written by Jeff Lynne, both of which were um, major sellers for them. Yeah, 1991, Roy Orbison, I Drove All Night, produced by Jeff Lynne. Joe Cocker, 1991, Night Calls, written and produced by uh, Jeff Lynne. 1992, Roy Orbison, Heartbreak Radio, produced by Jeff Lynne. And then in 1992, Ringo Starr's Don't Go Where the Road Don't Go, a big song for him, was produced by Jeff Lynne. Again in 92, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Christmas All Over Again, co-produced by Jeff Lynne. Uh, Juliana Ray in 1992, another person I never heard of, I'll Get You Back, produced by Jeff Lynne. 1993, uh, Hank Marvin's record in which uh, Mark Knopfler was featured. There's a song called Wonderful Land that was produced by Jeff Lynne. 1995, uh, Bonnie Tyler, Time Makes a Broken Heart, co-written by Jeff Lynne. And then the Beatles in 1995, the three remaining Beatles doing Free as a Love, excuse me, Free as a Bird and Real Love were both co-produced by Jeff Lynne. 1997, Paul McCartney, Little Willow, co-produced by Jeff Lynne. Same year, The World Tonight, co-produced by Jeff Lynne. And Beautiful Night, co-produced by Jeff Lynne, all off Paul McCartney's solo record. Strange Fruit, which was a band featuring Bill Nye and Jimmy Nail. Uh, in 1999, there was a song called Dirty World that was co-written by Jeff Lynne. Uh, 2002, George Harrison's Any Road, co-produced by Jeff Lynne. 2006, Tom Petty's Saving Grace, co-produced by uh, Jeff Lynne. 2009, uh, Regina Spector, another person I never heard of, Blue, Lip, Blue Lips, produced by Jeff Lynne. And then in 2012, One Day at a Time and Analog Man, one of my favorite Jill Ball uh, songs, both produced by Jeff Lynne. Eric Idle in 2014, if people know him from Monty Python. Uh, the Infinite Monkey Cage, produced by Jeff Lynne. 2014, a group called Take That, another group I never heard of. Fall Down at Your Feet, produced by Jeff Lynne. And in 2015, Brian Adams' uh, Brand New Day, produced by Jeff Lynne. Don't Even Try, produced by Jeff Lynne. And You Belong to Me, produced by Jeff Lynne. So, as our listening audience can hear, uh, uh, he gets around. <laughs> and he gets around with a, yeah, with a very diverse group of, of acts. Now, most of them being related in a sense, because obviously uh, Roy Orbison and Tom Petty uh, all related with George Harrison and Bob Dylan in uh, the traveling 
uh, Wilburys. Okay. So they all sort yeah. of know each other, but that's that's how the connection with Jeff with uh, Jeff Lynn. Uh, but still, uh, you know, Randy Newman, Brian Wilson, Dwayne Eddy. I mean, these are some very, you know, uh, Dave Edmonds, you know, the Everly Brothers. I mean, it's a, it's a very diverse group of folks that he's had his hand in uh, their works, and some of their works extremely well-known and very successful for the artists. So he is quite the man. Wow. Yeah, he he definitely gets around with some very interesting people and very talented people. Yep, yeah. All righty. And, and, and so diverse, so it's like, well, gosh, you know. Yeah, that's the best part. You know, he's he's pretty much open to any genre. It sounds like yeah. he's about. Yeah, he's definitely not a, a one-trick genre pony by, by any means. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay. I, I'm just going to inquire real quick. Was there more to the story? Because I did not want to step on anything. What's that? Oh, just making sure that you were done. I didn't want to, like, do applause unless you oh, were no, done. No, because no. I feel like yeah. we got sidetracked with chit-chat, and I, it dawned on me. I wasn't quite clear if you were finished, so I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, and of course, Jeff Lynn continues to do work with Electrolyte Orchestra, although now it's called Jeff Lynn's Electrolyte Orchestra uh, because of contractual purposes oh. with the original uh, ELO. But uh, he's he's definitely not uh, sitting on his laurels at all. He's also, most people may or may not know, uh, he also plays multi-instruments. He's kind of like uh, Harrison was and Paul McCartney, you know, he plays just a myriad of instruments, not just guitar. Oh, very uh, nice. I love that. Yeah, yeah I do uh, too. Yeah, let's, let's give him some up. applause for that. He certainly earned it. So here's to you, Jeff. Yay. Good. Much appreciation. Y'all go out there and pick up something he's done and give him some love. He certainly earned it. Okay. It is 1114, almost 1115. And thank you for that story. And again, sure. we will take... Calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the evening until around midnight. So feel free to give us a call if you would like. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. All righty. Mother's Little Helper, Depression and Antidepressants. So we're going to very slightly deviate from our format in the, the first part is that I'm going to be reading you an article and the article it references that I ran across. So earlier this month, because we were going to do this on the 17th, um, I ran across an article in my news feed on antidepressants that caught my attention and I thought might make a good topic for discussion. Now, after further investigation into the article and what it had to say, and the other article it was referencing, I found that honestly neither the new source or the original source were necessarily all that qualified to make broad sweeping statements about the efficacy of antidepressants or related medications. I mean, they do have some qualifications, but the whole thing seemed kind of like I'm a journalist about medicine instead of I'm an actual doctor in that field of medicine. I kind of had that feel to it. And some of the uh, qualifications didn't check out to my satisfaction. But regardless, I thought it might be worthwhile to look more closely at both these claims 
and then for Dr. Mathis to opine on the correctness and credibility, uh, if they have them, of either or both posts with regard to the use of antidepressants. And I'm sure many of you who have followed the show for a while know that he's not very big on um, prescriptions as a first line of solution for most mental health issues. Um, you know, we do make a big deal about trying to vet our sources and be as scientific as possible. But here's the thing. Y'all are going to go about your day. You're going to see stuff in the news or on your news feed, on your social media. And not everybody has time to be that rigorous, and we get it. And the amount of time that I spend chasing this stuff down is because of the show. It's a little unusual. And I do understand that not everybody has that time or, honestly, even the acumen to do it. So one of the main points that we do this show for is to inform people and help our listeners. So even if the original article is a little wonky, even if the article it references might be a little wonky, that's okay because it's starting a discussion about this. And at the end of it, what Dr. Mathis will have to say about these things won't be wonky. We will at least give you that. So tonight we will discuss the original referenced article from 2008. I'm going to do that first. It was referenced by... Secondly, an August 2022 article that I ran across. And then we'll talk about therapy, counterpoints and critiques and stuff, and conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. And before we get started, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything you want to say before we get started. Nope. Well, let's get into it. Okay. Diving in. So as I said, I'm doing this in reverse order. This is the original article that's referenced by the article I found. And this was posted by University College of London, UCL. Um, there's your first hit where I'm saying, you know, the sources are eh. This is not a college that offers top-of-the-line medical degrees in any specialized field. It's a general college. It's not a bad college. But just understand that these guys are not the premier experts on this sort of thing. So take with a small grain of salt to a bit. Okay, so this is what it has to say. It's kind of a summary of what it has to say. Um, the original article was A Myth of the Chemical Cure by Palgrave Macmillan. And this was done by academic and clinician Dr. Joanna Moncrief. And she exposes as fraudulent the claims that psychiatric drugs, drugs correct chemical imbalances. Step by step, Dr. Moncrief's book explains how the notion of a chemical cure is fatally flawed because psychiatric drugs do not work by treating diseases of the brain. While drugs developed for physical disease interact with the defined disease process, in the case of psychiatry, there is no good evidence that drugs work in this way, argues Dr. Moncrief. But the death of the chemical imbalance theory has no bearing on whether antidepressants that affect the serotonin system are effective. These medications weren't developed on this premise. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The chemical imbalance theory was based on an emerging understanding of how antidepressants were shown to work. The first two antidepressant medications, both discovered in the 1950s, were observed to have positive effects on mood as side effects of their hoped-for functions. Ipronazid, 
I-P-R-O-N-I-A-Z-I-D, was developed as a treatment for tuberculosis, and amipramine was an antihistamine. We know now that iproniazid is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, oxidase inhibitor, M-A-O-I. Yeah, that's the, MA, that's the MAOIs that you see referenced. Yeah. That's what that stands exactly. for. Exactly. You, you don't usually see the word written out, and I wanted you guys to know what it was, even though I butchered it. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it stops the enzyme that breaks down serotonin and similar brain chemicals. But we didn't know this when its antidepressant effects were first observed in 1952. Imipramine is a tricyclic antidepressant, and among other effects, it blocks the reuptake of serotonin after it's been secreted, also allowing more to stay in the brain. A simple hypothesis then presented itself. If both classes of antidepressants were shown to increase brain levels of serotonin, which actually I, I question how they came to this conclusion. I, it sounds more like they were guessing or hoping. i got to be honest, but Dr. Mathis can poke on that in a little bit. Um, so... If that, then depression must be caused by low levels of serotonin. Good hypothesis, but it's not a conclusion using scientific method. Researchers set out to demonstrate this in patients with depression, showing that serotonin and its metabolites and precursors were lower in the blood, in the cerebral spinal fluid, and so on. But these studies suffered from what we now know, plagued many studies of their era, leading to the so-called replication crisis. Studies used small sample sizes, selectively reported their results, and if they failed to demonstrate the hypothesis, were often not reported at all. In short, the findings were unreliable, and since then, larger studies and meta-analyses, which summarized the many similar studies, made it clear the hypothesis wasn't supported. What's the link between the theory and antidepressants? In the meantime, pharmaceutical companies spotted a clear line to communicate the effectiveness of their medications. Depression was caused by a chemical imbalance that could be corrected by antidepressants. This coincided with the development of a new class of antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, which, as the name suggests, were more selective than the tricyclic antidepressants in targeting serotonin reuptake as their mechanism of action. These drugs, then known as Prozac, Zoloft, and Cipramil, became blockbusters and remain widely used today, albeit with a variety of names since expiration of their patents. I don't actually know when that happened, but the original article's from 2008, so I would assume no earlier than the early 2000s that it expired. A few psychiatrists with an understanding of the nuance of brain function believed the chemical imbalance theory. It never fitted with the way that they could see it that SSRIs worked with serotonin function changing hours after taking the medication, but depression not showing improvement for about four weeks. But there were and are many medical practitioners with less sophisticated understanding of depression and neurochemistry who were happy to repeat this message to their patients. It was an effective message and one that took hold in the popular imagination. I've heard it repeated many times. Next question. 
So are antidepressants effective? The new paper by Moncrief and colleagues, while not saying anything new, does us all a favor by reiterating the message that has been clear for some time. There is no evidence to support the chemical imbalance theory. Their message has been amplified by the extensive media attention the article has received. But much of the commentary has extrapolated from the study's finding to suggest it undermines the effectiveness of antidepressants, including by the authors themselves. This shows a misunderstanding of how medical science works. Medicine is pragmatic. Medicine has often established that a treatment works well before it has understood how it works. Many commonly used medicines were used for decades before we understood their mechanisms of action, from aspirin to morphine to penicillin. Knowing they worked provided the impetus for establishing how they worked, and this knowledge generated new treatments. The evidence for SSRIs being effective for depression is convincing to most reasonable assessors. They're not effective for as many people with depression as we might hope, as I have written before, but they are overall more effective than placebo treatments. Critics suggest the magnitude of the difference between the medications and placebo isn't great enough to warrant their use. That is a matter of opinion. Well, yes, (laughs) because you haven't refuted it with science. Uh, (laughs) And many people report very significant benefits, even as some people report none or even that they've caused harm. Next question. If it's not a chemical imbalance, how do antidepressants work? In truth, we still don't really know how or why antidepressants work. The brain is a complex organ. We still don't have a clear idea about how general anesthetics work. But few people would refuse an anesthetic when contemplating serious surgery on this basis. I'm a little disturbed to find that out because I've had to use an anesthetic and I did not realize it was considered quite as spurious as this article implies. Um, In the same vein... When contemplating whether an antidepressant might be an option for someone with depression, it is of little consequence that its mechanism of action is incompletely understood. So let's put the chemical imbalance theory to bed. Maybe. (laughs) We should continue our efforts to understand the nature of depression, which while we keep searching for better treatments. Now, this part I'm sure Dr. Mathis is going to like a little better. Attending to diet exercise and sleep is effective for many people with depression. Psychotherapy can be very helpful too, but many people struggle with depression despite trying these things. And it is for them that we need to keep up our efforts to find better treatments. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis and see if there's anything you'd like to add before we go to the other article. So here's the problem with a lot of that stuff. There isn't just one kind of depression, even when you're talking about, what I call depression, depression, not bipolar disorder. Uh, Depression is not just a serotonin-based depression. There are, uh, you know, epinephrine's involved in some depressions, um, dopamine's involved in some depressions. So the problem with the quote-unquote chemical theory and balance theory is that they they focused it just on one chemical, and there's a myriad of chemicals we now know involved in depression. So it's, that's why the SSRIs work for some people. The SNRIs work temporarily for some people. And in some people, you have the atypical antidepressants, 
uh, things like bupropion hydrochloride, which it does not focus on serotonin at all. So is there chemistry involved that's wacky with depression? Well, duh. There's chemistry involved in happiness. There's chemistry involved in excitement, in fear, in joy, uh, in anxiety. They're all chemical imbalances in the brain. Everything that isn't status quo is technically a quote-unquote chemical imbalance. But that doesn't mean you give a medication to fix the chemical imbalance. Now, and when you also look at the group of people who have <clears throat> endogenous depression, they, they were born with, for lack of a better term, funky wiring in their brain, and their brain's not producing chemistry correctly, you've got to figure out which chemistry it's not producing and just don't assume it's serotonin. And that's the problem with this stuff, even though serotonin-based depression, the so-called quote-unquote vegetative depression, is among the more common depressions, that can also be exacerbated by co-occurring disorders like anxiety, like PTSD, like a cluster B personality disorder. Because you have to see what's the cause of the depression. Is it just a chemical issue, which it's only for maybe uh, less than 10% of all depressed people have endogenous depression. They're born with a, a messed up brain that isn't producing correct chemistry. Most other depressions are temporary and they're caused by life situations. And when I say temporary, I mean anywhere from, you know, six months to five years. They're not like lifelong battles. But you also have to decide what chemistry is involved and know how to address that chemistry. And there's not just one way to address the chemistry because, as you mentioned a minute ago, exercise has been found to be myocardiovascular has been found to be one of the best things for depression and anxiety. And it will cost you a doggone thing because you can walk around the block or go up and down the stairs in your house or what the heck ever. You don't have to belong to a gym and buy equipment or any of that kind of stuff. The other thing is studies since in, in recent, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years or so, have clearly indicated that psychotherapy of a cognitive behavioral nature is superior to medication. And that's been replicated hundreds of times without meds at all. And then if you combine that with exercise and proper diet, because you can't out-pill or out-exercise or out-therapy a shitty diet. Garbage in, garbage out. And that's why every one of my patients does a two-hour grocery shopping therapeutic spree, and I tell them what to leave in the basket and what to leave on the shelf. Because many of the foods in our grocery store aren't real foods. They're synthetic stuff that nobody has any business eating. But particularly if you have a problem with anxiety, depression, ADHD, yada, yada, yada. So it's a multifaceted issue that there's not just one answer for. And I think that's the problem that the original quote-unquote chemical imbalance movement started because they thought, well, here's a simple answer. We'll just take these serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitor drugs. And it's not a simple thing because it, it can, and depression can co-occur with a bunch of other disorders, which the depression medication may actually make worse. So then you're taking something for the anxiety and or something for the depression and or something for whatever, and now that you have to take something else for the, the medications not to interact, and now you're talking about side effects, and for some people, the side effects are pretty wimpy. And for other people, they're seriously annoying and, in some cases, life-threatening. So that is why I haven't advised a single patient in the last 25 years to take medication. Now, having said that, <clears throat> I don't see a whole lot of people falling under the psychotic realm, uh, which would require antipsychotics, things like, uh, you know, Thorazine or Stolazine or some of the newer uh, anti-psychotic anti medications. 
Uh, and I see very, 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 very few bipolars. And some of those can be, uh, can be treated if it's a mild case, but a lot of the more severe cases do require to be on some sort of a med, whether it's an old school med, uh, like lithium carbonate or something like Abilify or whatever. But <clears throat> I don't typically work with those kinds of folks uh, just because of the nature of my uh, caseload. The vast majority of people that I work with do not need to be on medication, period, end of story. If they will change their diet and stay on a regimen of holistic foods that, and minimize additives and uh, artificial ingredients and prepackaged stuff that has way too much sugar and salt and bad fats and yada, yada, right, and do some cognitive behavioral restructuring, CBT uh, or REBT or DBT or whatever version of that you want to do, uh, and combine that with some light exercise stuff, they can get a whole lot better, both physiologically and psychologically, without the use of meds and without risking any side effects or any allergic reactions to the meds. Uh, so that's kind of my story. <laughs> okay. No, that's that's what I was hoping for. Okay. Yeah. So here is the second part. You know, in reverse order, this is the first article that I saw, which was referencing the article I just read you guys. And um, I, I have a significant paragraph on vetting the source that it came from. And the reason is because I'm making the point that you go out in the world and you see these articles and they're from psychiatric or psychological looking sources and it takes work to sit down and dig around and see, like, who actually publishes this, who was behind it, what's the pedigree of the people that did the experiments or whatever. It, and you need to check this stuff out if something smells funny. You should check it out all the time, but you only have so many hours yeah. in the day. But, um, yeah. So I'm going to get started and read this to you. It's not that long because it's a paragraph of commentary from the article, and then it's a paragraph about vetting the source. And just because I want you guys to see the process of what a source can be when at first blush you think it's fine. And I want you all to learn this process. Okay, so this is the first article. Um, and this was from August 2022. And like I said, we were going to do this on the 17th. So it was like from the beginning of the month when this came out. Quote, the chemical imbalance theory of depression is well and truly dead. A paper by Joanna Moncrief and colleagues, longtime critics of the effectiveness of antidepressants, has caused a splash. The paper provides a summary of other summaries that confirm there is no evidence to support the idea that depression is caused by disturbance of the brain's serotonin system. They have done us a favor by corralling the evidence that says as much, even if we already knew this to be the case. But the death of the chemical imbalance theory has no bearing on whether antidepressants that affect the serotonin system are effective. These medications aren't de weren't developed on this premise. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The chemical imbalance theory was based on an emerging understanding, pardon my hiccups, I'm sorry, uh, emerging understanding of how antidepressants were shown to work. And this is from the source psypost.org, P-S-Y-P-O-S-T. Org. And the title given to this was The Chemical Imbalance Theory of Depression is Dead, but that doesn't mean antidepressants don't work. 
by Christopher Davey, August 7th, 2022, in the section for depression and psychopharmacology. And now vetting. SciPost is an independently owned psychology and neuroscience news website dedicated to reporting the latest research on human behavior, cognition, and society. The publication covers the latest discoveries in psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, sociology, and similar fields. (laughs) Here's where it starts to get spurious. (laughs) We are not interested in rewriting press releases from universities. We are not interested in overgeneralizing or mischaracterizing research to get more clicks, even though they totally just did that. We are not interested in confirming or disproving ideological beliefs. That's fine. We are only interested in accurately reporting research about how humans think and behave, and we only report on research that has been published in legitimate, peer-reviewed scientific journals. It did not quote any journals that that article came from. All of the information contained in our articles comes directly from these studies and interviews with scientists. Again, I question this. Our mission is to spread objective and reliable information about psychology and neuroscience research. By reporting on a wide variety of important, interesting, and overlooked studies, SIPOST provides the general public, mental health professionals, and academic scholars with free updates on new research, providing everyone with a glimpse in the latest knowledge being uncovered by scientists. The website was created by Eric W. Dolan, who currently serves as a sole owner and editor-in-chief. SciPost is entirely funded by displaying advertisements. This does not sound like the pedigree of a man who understands psychopharmacology. I'm just saying. And with that, I'm going to turn it back to you, Dr. Mathis. Anything more to say about the next article? Well, just that, you know, you make a good point that some of these folks aren't that well healed uh, in their credentials. And the other problem is, you know, as I said before, everything that isn't status quo is technically a quote-unquote chemical imbalance. What is blown out of the water is the sense that depression is due to serotonin alone, and that is definitely not true because, and for some people that's true, but it's a very complex, as you said earlier, the brain's a complex organ, and, excuse me, people, you know, have different uh, levels of depression and different types of depression, and that's why one person's depression is not equal to another person's depression, uh, and then, uh, you know, if that gets complicated if you have co-occurring disorders, particularly like anxiety-type disorders, because the medication that somebody would normally give for an anxiety-type disorder is directly uh, antagonistic to depression, which means you're making the depression worse. And that's why you see these people oftentimes on polypharmacy, because they're on one medication for depression, one medication for anxiety disorders, and one medication to keep the two medications from competing. <laughs> and or generating side effects. Um, yeah. Or, right, or you're on sort of a, well, this medication sort of hits depression and sort of hits anxiety, and then if it doesn't work enough, we're going to potentiate it. We're going to add another medication on top of it to kind of give it a booster shot for the one that it's not working that well in and hope that it doesn't create more side effects. So it, it really becomes a, a biochemistry nightmare at some point. Oh and, you know, God. you get a few people who... Yeah, I mean, you get a few people who have pretty simple versions of depression. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if it's pretty mild, they're, they're probably going to be okay with no therapy and no medication, just getting out in the sunshine and exercise and let time do its thing. Um, but, you know, if you have a family history of depression, if you have a family history of trauma or a personal history of trauma, 
uh, you know, co-occurring anxiety disorder or, you know, you're a substance abuser and or you have ADHD and, you know, now you've just really, really, really muddied up the biochemistry waters. And you can't say, well, it's just this or it's just that. Uh, you know, and then you've got to look at people's level of resiliency because that varies, obviously, from person to person widely. Uh, and their social resources, right? And their financial resources in some cases. Uh, so, I mean, there are just so many doggone factors that I would say the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the chemical imbalance theory of depression being just due to serotonin is definitely dead. But everything's a chemical imbalance unless you're, you know, sitting in a chair going, ohm, you know, <laughs> what I call the Zen Lake brain, you know, or watching TV and kind of just zoning out. Everything, all emotions are due to chemical interactions in the brain, in some part of the brain. So you could, you could literally argue that happiness and joy and anger and frustration and sadness and despair are all different chemical concoctions in the brain which cause the brain to go one way or the other which you could theoretically say is a quote-unquote imbalance that 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 makes sense to me i some of the doctors that you mentioned earlier i refer to those as jackson pollock doctors because it honestly seems like they just throw spaghetti at the wall and see what slides down it and that's how they diagnose this crap (laughs) <laughs> right. And and the problem with some of these things is, you know, that we don't really know what the long term effects of some of these medications are until 20 years into usage. Right. So if you get somebody, let's say, on an SSRI like Paxil or Prozac or Zoloft and the, the kind of the three biggies, <clears throat> we didn't know at the time when those things came out in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, they were saying, oh, yeah, we did, you know, eight years of research and they're safe and you can use them lifelong and yada, yada. And, you know, here we are, you know, many years post and somewhere in the, in the uh, 2008, 2010, 2012 era, most of the manufacturers of all of those SSRIs sent out flyers to all the physicians that said, if you have people on these medications more than two years, get them off of it because we're starting to see, uh, what I call OBF, organic brain farts. Um, <laughs> we're starting to see memory issues and Alzheimer-like syndromes and dementia-like syndromes in some patients who've been on these things for as short as three years. And I can't tell you how many business execs have come into my office in their 40s and early, you know, early and mid-50s going, oh, my God, I've got pre-senile dementia. I think I've got pre-senile dementia, blah, blah, blah. And one of the first questions I ask them is, you don't happen to have a depression disorder, do you? And uh, you're not on SSRIs, are you? And if you are, how long have you been on them? And they all look at me like I'm some kind of, you know, wizard or something. And, uh, yeah, I'm getting my patient. And, um, you know, and, and, and they say, how did you know that? And I said, well, you've been on it more than two years, right? And they go, oh, yeah, I just, re-up my, I just refilled my uh, prescription. Okay, how long have you been on it? Twelve years. And my first comment is your doctor's a moron. And I tell them, just like I just said it to, to the audience out there, you're, you're, either your physician doesn't give a flip or your physician's an idiot because I got the notification and I don't prescribe those things. I know God darn well your physician got the notification. Why is that physician keeping you on medication that has a potential for brain farts after two years? And you've been on 12 years? That's malpractice in my opinion. 
Wow. And I've I've seen four or five of those. Yep. And I mean, coming and these guys came in just scared witless. You can imagine if you're in your late you know late forties, early fifties, and you know you're some business exec and you think your brain's going bye bye. This is not yeah. a good thing. <clears throat> yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, and I just feel like you know when I was picking on the sources earlier, I feel like they weren't including something, but you did a first period job of zeroing in on what's missing and what they're overlooking. Yeah. They're trying to, to make it one size fits all, and it's just right. not. No, it's, it's not, one size therapy doesn't fit all, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, I mean, I tell a lot of people, I am not the therapist for everybody. You've got to find somebody that, I, that works with you, right? And part of the thing is you've got to get good testing, and we're back to that again, to know what the hell's wrong with you. I mean, I, I got a call tonight from a family who's in crisis with their kid, and they're going, oh, we're looking for places to put the kid. I said, well, that's great. What is your testing? What testing? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, big surprise. Oh, you my know. God. Wow. Kill surprise? No. <laughs> no. And so I sat with the mom on the phone, and I said, hey, here's why you don't want to just knee-jerkingly put your kid in patient someplace. And I went through the thing. She's like, oh, my God, that makes perfect sense. And I wanted to say thank you. I usually do, but she doesn't know me well enough, and she would probably think I was being yeah, a smart-ass one. Just make a joke, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One ha- no matter how weird one is, speaking of myself, one has to know when to keep one's mouth shut. <laughs> so, you know, so I said to her, why don't you guys come in tomorrow? Why don't you and your husband come in tomorrow? And I'll, we'll talk about it at length, and I'll explain the testing phenomena for you and blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, my God, that's so wonderful. Nobody's ever said that to us. This kid's been in like five hospitals. You mean nobody's ever said that to them? They should all be shot. Wow. Yeah, I... I mean, yeah. I, I am so, and, you know, you folks have heard it before, and, you know, I know you've heard it from me hundreds of times. It's like, okay, dude, I heard that the last 3,000 times you said it. Um, <laughs> it's just really, it's really annoying and, frankly, sad that people's lives could be saved certain stressors and pains if people would just do their flipping J-O-B in my business. Yeah. Right? And And I tell people it's like, if you go to a physician and you're bleeding out of your anal canal, and I don't mean to be rude, right, your, your physician's probably not going to say, well, gee, have you done some spicy Italian or Greek or Mexican food lately? Uh, why don't you take this bottle of Pepto-Bismol and call me in a week if the bleeding doesn't stop? Oh, wow. In the racket of South, hell no. <laughs> I mean, they're going to put you through so many tests to make sure you don't have duodenal cancer, you don't have bleeding ulcer, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right? Yeah. Well, why aren't we doing that in psychology? Why aren't we doing that in mental health? Right? And the excuse I get yeah. from a lot of people is, oh, well, that costs money. Yeah? Well, so does a CAT scan. I just had one. <laughs> and I'm going to be you know, a little gross about it. So does a funeral. So yeah, you know. I mean, you know, do you want to think you have brain bleed, or do you want to make sure you have don't have brain bleed? Oh, I didn't hit it that hard. I know the, the patch of blood was the size of a bass drum on the pavement, um, but it, I don't think I cracked my skull. I should be okay, and that really is what happened to me. That's that's no joke. I was taken away in the ambulance. They yeah. took me to uh, the ER, right? And and, and they, they said you're going to CAT scan, and I went okay. I mean, I'm, you know, they were doing, they were on their job. They were, do, they were on their game at that place. I have to give them their, a credit. Well, why aren't we doing that in the mental health field? Which is not. And I'm like, come on, guys. 
Let's go. And, Come on, let's, and there's you know, let's why I wanted to do this show, even though the information was wonky. It was because the information was wonky, and I knew there was something wrong with it. And yep. you would yep. identify it better than I would. <laughs> well, you know, so I, 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 see this crap, <laughs> I see this yeah, I see this crap every day, multiple yeah. times a week. You know, and I just every time it comes in my office, I just roll my eyes, and I want to scream and pull my hair out. And, you know, take a newsy to certain professionals, so-called yeah. professionals, you know, but I mean, it's just that. And the sad part about it is that's, that's accepted as a standard of care in our business. And I think it is a substandard standard. And I've said this for I, years and I get the rolling eyes and the, oh, you're just a troublemaker. And I'm like, well, no, go, go yourself. These are people's lives we're talking about. You don't just leave them out to dry. You don't, you know, you don't go. This is not the salad bar buffet approach. Well, let's try this and see what that works. No, nope, that's not it. Maybe you have this. Let's try this drug. Okay. No, that doesn't Oh, work. Hmm. my God. Yeah, I call you know, that the salad I bar came, buffet approach. Before I came to Atlanta, I had somebody assigned to do medications with me up here because I was seeing a counselor. She couldn't do meds. And, right. and he was Jackson Pollock. He would just throw things at me. And I was a histrionic woman and all this other stuff. And it, he could never parse the concept that I did not have a biochemical malfunction in my brain. I had a life that would be a fucking week on Oprah. It was full of unnecessary drama and trauma and PTSD right. and other crap. Right. And I'm like, my dude, if you had my life, you would be in trauma right now. Right. And that changes so chemistry. Exactly. And and my life happened to me. Chemicals didn't happen to me. If there are chemicals, they're not the ones you're talking about. Right. And, right. and like you said earlier, these are not one size fits all. You know, just starting with the basic divide of does my brain malfunction or did I have so many things happen to me that I just, I ran out of the resilience to defend it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and the other thing is no two people with the same disorder are the same. I mean, yeah. I just finished testing two very ADHD people, and both of them uh, are in law enforcement, and uh-huh. they're both really good. They're both really good people. Their two their tests could not be more different. And wow. in one in one case, and they both have ADHD out the wazoo. They're bo- they're both guys. They're both in their you know mid to late twenties, and. One of them has a lot of compensatory skill sets and has some auditory processing skill sets, which most ADHD people don't have, right? Neither one of them could do math if their life depended on it, and that's the thing that most ADHD people kick everybody's ass on. Mm-hmm. So you don't really know what you've got until you get paper and pencil and see the person in your office and make notes and, and run them through the testing. You just don't know. You can't make any goddamn assumptions. The only assumption you can make if you see somebody with ADHD, if they really have it, is they have a dopamine imbalance in the prefrontals. And they probably don't have a lot of abstract reasoning, and they probably don't have a lot of voluntary processing. But that's not always the case either. So you don't know really yeah. what you got until you do the testing. And this is why I'm such a bully and, you know, uh, an, almost an addiction person, you know, like get tested. I mean, that's the first two words out of my mouth. You know, have you had testing? The first, you know, yeah. first four words out of my mouth, somebody. You've been in the hospital five times. You've never had any. You've had five inpatient uh, 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 addiction treatment things and nobody's ever given you any testing. Really? Yeah. You've had two suicide attempts and nobody's given you any testing? And this is why I made us do an entire episode on don't self-diagnose. 
I cannot scream yeah. that enough. And I still know not only friends but family members who still do it after this. There's like, oh, I know. They don't think I know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, seriously. Well, I, I just had a, I just had a person pull their sibling out of therapy with me because uh, I wanted them to come in for testing, and they were all butthurt that it was taking time away from their schedule to bring their kid in for testing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm, yeah, I'm really good, but I'm not God. The extra O in that word is really important. And your kid's very complicated. Did, did you read the last, you know, discharge summary from the last of the nine therapists your kid's seen? Did, did you read that? Did you look at some of the test scores on there and they didn't no. really give a complete test? No. Did you not do that? Oh, well, it sucks to be you. This is the way your kid's still messed up. And I, yeah. I, it, just, it, it just irritates me that some people are that freaking stupid. And they've got kids that are in trouble or, or siblings that are in trouble or fam- other family members or friends or whatever. And I, and I know this sounds corny, but it, I really feel hurt by it. I really feel sad for these people because they don't have to be suffering to the level that they're suffering. It's, it's freaking sad as hell. Yeah. But I can only do yeah. what I can do, and I can only do it with people who are willing to do it with me. That's what she said. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just do what I can do, and I try to spread the word out. And, and that's part of why, we, you know, you and I have talked about it before. That's why you and I do this radio show, because it's not like we're getting rich off of it, you know. Um, and it's really to empower people to take charge of their own uh, stuff so that they can become better than they are right now, because all of us have the ability to do that. You know, and, and certainly my listeners who've been, you know, frequenting the show have heard me say hundreds of times before, take your flipping power back, recognize you have power, find it, learn how to use it and never let it go and work the pejesus out of it. And don't let anybody tell you you don't have it. It's just, it, it's so God darn sad for me. I mean, it really is. I know that sounds corny, but it really, it, it feels very sad to me. It's so unnecessary, and exactly. I'm, I'm very much hoping, you know, even if just a couple of people share this show with friends or something or send somebody a link, if somebody comes back and goes, oh, oh my God, I had no idea, now I know what's going on with me and I can fix it, you know, that's why we do this work. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So let's go ahead and go to the next part, which isn't really a discussion so much. I captured your original comment to share um, so as far as therapy counterpoints and critiques, um, I've already let Dr. Mathis go well off the chain. That's fine, but we'll have an opportunity to finish that up. So um, when I first brought this topic up, this is what Dr. Mathis had to say about it. And this is in perfect alignment with other stuff we've said this evening. And he said, let's face it, every mental disorder by definition involves a chemical imbalance of one kind or another. That said, Therapy reestablishes, if done properly, reestablishes that balance as do naturopathic methods. As such, medications are not the way to go for almost any and all psychological issues, with very few exceptions. I know I've, I've had one exception, but even then it's only addressed one of the symptoms of what's going on with me. There's a, a medication that helps with my PTSD. It's an off-book use of it, and it's really weird, and he had a colleague who got me started on that and that was very helpful but I also know that what happened for me is extremely unusual with my pathologies and this is why the one size fits all thing is very bad 
So uh, and that's with why that, you go through testing yeah, to see what it is. More. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which you did. <laughs> so I got a couple. <laughs> you know? I got a couple questions for you that I have okay. here in the notes for the script. So are okay, there sure. pathologies that are the, you? You do say that there are a handful of exceptions with this. So. Um, what would be examples of pathologies that are a known exception to this where pharmacological intervention actually does some good? Uh, well, it keeps the crap at bay. It doesn't fix anything, but at least it keeps it at bay and keeps the people, in some cases, functional. Schizophrenia being one of them, uh, delusional disorder being another one, both of which are psychotic disorders, uh, and uh, moderate to severe cases of bipolar disorder. Okay, so it, it kind of sounds like most of the exceptions seem to reside in the cluster A's. Is that accurate? Well, no, the psychotic disorders aren't aren't personality disorders, and neither are bipolar. Oh, okay, cluster, my bad. Yeah, cluster A personality disorders are the guys and gals that are kind of funky, but they're not. And I, I know this is an incorrect term, and I, I'm going to apologize to the audience when I say it before I even come out. This comes out of my mouth. They're not nuts. They're not crazy crazy. They're just kind of funky. You know, they're kind of me on steroids. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Not that. Uh, yeah. They're the otter eccentric folks. You know, they're 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 the uh, Dungeons and Dragon nerd types. You know, they, they I don't want to really, really deal with reality. I know it's fantasy, but I like living here. The other folks, the schizophrenics and the the hallucin the um, uh, delusional disorders, they don't know it's not crazy. Ah, okay, okay. Right. That being the difference, they actually right. it doesn't register with them that this is odd no, or they actually dangerous. think the guy on the on the on the record album is talking directly about them in the song and singing to them. They think the gal on TV when she's talking about uh, something is talking directly to them through the TV because through invisible wires. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. these are these the, in the vernacular of the South. Them boys and girls ain't right. <laughs> you know? But yeah, uh, but so that does point at the ones where medical intervention is called for. But you know, like we've been saying, talk? there's a yeah. long list of exceptions. Yeah, um, but but you know, there's and there's probably a couple of those I'm not thinking of offhand. But there aren't many. There really okay. are not yeah. many. That's you know. the main point I want people to take away is that, yes, there sure. are going to be some, which is why we said there's none. We didn't say that because there are some, but they're not many and don't come out of the gate thinking that, oh, well, I must be an exception. You're probably not. Right. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So in, in conclusion, I just want to make sure, um, do, do we actually know very much more about how antidepressants actually work and what are we know, we know that dietary certain, and supplemental changes that might help instead? Yeah, and the dietary and supplemental changes do essentially the same thing that the medications were designed to do. But the difference is if you're doing dietary changes and supplements and nutrients and that sort of thing, they're encouraging the brain cells to be healed. They're not taking a sledgehammer and beating the crap out of them and saying, you know, if we have ways for you to make dopamine. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> You know, I, I saw I, I saw again for the millionth time the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the scene where the guy's going to the oh, bar. He goes, uh, yeah, oh, I'll tell you okay. what you know to do. Oh, I know you've been flying. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what medications do to the brain. When you give somebody naturopathic stuff, you're actually trying to get the cell to regenerate. You're trying to get the cell to help itself. 
right? The same thing with exercise, the same thing with therapy. You're creating new neural pathways to either circumvent or repair the ones that aren't that great. Medication doesn't do that. It just says to the brain, we need you to stop producing this chemistry, this chemical because you, you've got way too much. Or we need you to start producing it because you're not doing enough of it. Or we need you to hold on to it and not excrete it because you're throwing away good chemistry. And it does it with a sledgehammer. The, the nutrigenic stuff, the holistic stuff, the vitamins, herbs, the, the, you know, that kind of stuff, are things to encourage the brain cells to heal. Medication doesn't heal anything. It literally puts a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And that's why people are on medication most of their lives. Now, they're going to be, now and in fairness, if you change your diet and eat correctly and you're on nutrigenics and stuff, you're probably going to be on those for quite a while too. But the difference is you're making your brain better. You're healing your brain. You're making your brain grow pathways that, wouldn't, that wasn't growing before, and you're no longer having the depression, anxiety, whatever, and your brain's better than it was before. So you're growing, you're, you're, you're becoming awesome. The medications don't do that. Yeah. And also the nutrigenic stuff has no side effects. Which all, it kind of makes sense. Although I, I do want to point out one unfortunate thing about all this, why it makes it harder to, to fight this fight. Uh, most insurance is not going to cover those sorts of treatments. Oh, absolutely unless not. Unless no, you're in with something right. else. Now, you know, if you go to a right. dietitian or something, yeah. Yeah, our, I, even then, our, our system is set up to reinforce the medical status quo and big pharma. And I don't mean to sound like a paranoid guy, but that's, that's just the reality of what it is. Yeah, it is I'm not, always trying to stay away from that term. But, yeah, I do know what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, and I'm not trying to, you know, to, to, to give anybody any, any uh, ammunition because I really need to. It's all out there already. That's the reality. Our system is set up for the status quo, which reinforces big pharma and the medical profession because they make big money off this stuff. They don't make money off vitamins. That's why for many years the medical companies tried to outlaw vitamins and put them under the FDA and all the kind of crap, and they were hugely unsuccessful. And it's a good thing that they were uh, because they wanted physicians only to be able to prescribe certain uh, vitamins and, and nutrients. And I'm like, oh, that's the biggest crap, biggest bunch of horsemen on the planet because they get almost no nutritional training in med school, zero. Chiropractors get a whole lot more uh, nutritional uh, training than physicians do. We don't get any of that either. You know, dietitians, uh, <clears throat> uh, nutritionists and chiropractors and holistic physicians, in naturopathic mm-hmm. physicians, those folks get a boatload of training. We get nada. Physicians get nada. Oh, we'll do the FDA food pyramid. That thing is such horse manure, it's not even funny. Oh, that's been so debunked that, like 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. yeah. So that's the, that's the training. They don't get trained. They don't know any better. I'm not slamming them. Neither do we. I mean, I came into yeah. this... The hard way, because as you know, I have a history of illness as a child and yada, yada, yada. So I came into this over many years of of doing personal research and taking classes and, you know, because this is none of this crap's in grad school. That's why a lot of my colleagues will send their people to me for nutritional, uh, you know, for for, uh, dietary vitamins and herbs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because they don't get any of that yeah, yeah exactly. but I have. I, you know, it's been a long journey, and it's been very frustrating at times. But the uh, 
alternative is to live a life less fulfilled and me no likey. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's and why I, I bring want, it I up because like I, my... I want people to understand the fight that they're in for to get this, but also to oh, understand yeah. that's worth it. Because like with yeah. this medication thing, there's so much God darn misinformation out there about holistic stuff and, you know, natural healing and stuff. And there's all these conflicting things. And you're just like, what the hell? And all these different vitamin manufacturers, most of whom put their stuff with garbage in it. And you just, you know, and it's like you don't know who to believe and where to go. And it's, it's incredibly confusing and incredibly frustrating. Yeah. I get it. So, all righty, we are getting, uh, we're actually past the top of the hour. So we'll go ahead and wrap with this. Is there anything else that you want to bring up that we have not addressed yet? Nope, I'm good. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. So on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify. We've really grown. This is awesome. So we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion on Wednesday, September 14th, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com. We also want to give a shout-out to some of our other NDB media shows that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, First, Travel It's Radio tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. St. Augustine, the oldest city in the United States, is the heart of Florida's historic coast in the northeastern part of the Sunshine State. The home of museums, forts, inns, and even the Fountain of Youth draws visitors all year because of its benign climate and wide variety of attractions. Hear more from Barbara Golden when she visits Travel It's Radio Thursday, September 1st for an interview with Dan Schlossberg and co-host Mary Ellen Nugent Lee. Next up, Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, and this is on StreamYard. So check the NDB Media page on Facebook for links and times. Tales of the Walking Dead online viewing party is in full swing. Season 1, Episode 4 is this Sunday, the 4th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The title of the show is Amy slash Dr. Everett. Official AMC synopsis. In a nature documentary set in the dead sector, a naturalist who studies walkers encounters a spirited settler. An unlikely respect is forged between the two as the settler tries to argue in favor of people taking back the land from the dead. Interestingly, Anthony Edwards, uh, people may know from Revenge of the Nerds as well as other shows, is playing Dr. Everett and Poppy Lou as Amy. Uh, following The following Sunday, uh, Season 1, Episode 5 on the 11th, uh, is an episode called Devon, D-A-V-O-N. A synopsis for that, in a noirish, fractured memory thriller, a young stranger suddenly wakes up in a dangerous foreign town with no memory of how he got there. He must piece together fragments of his broken mind to uncover why the townspeople accuse him of murder. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega, 10 p.m. on Monday night, Eastern Time. Roger D. Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. And Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Fandom Access, we can review. Join the creative critics Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they tackle another night of TV. Recent hot takes have included Westworld, Moonhaven, Paper Girls, American Horror Stories, and whatever else sounds good. Please look for the Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, iTunes, 
on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, and rock on. Good night. See you next time. Thank you.